The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network, GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. You know, before we got talking here ahead of our show with Dean Bertram, and my co-host, of course, is Tim Swartz, I was mentioning the fact that on our premium show, after the Paracast, we don't have the language restrictions because we don't have the FCC. On commercial radio like this show is on, you can't use the seven deadly words. In fact, when I went to broadcasting school, I was told if you use one of those words even by accident, you will no longer have a career in radio. Of course, this was before satellite radio and Howard Stern, decades before, so we know how things have changed there. The other thing, of course, if you like trivia, is that the broadcasting school I went to was just up the street from the famous Brill Building on Broadway in New York City. The Brill Building is where they wrote all those famous songs of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Okay? So, you know, like Pleasant Valley Sunday, and you've lost that love and feeling and all that stuff. It's the Brill Building down the street from us. Oh, well. We are going to talk history again. Some people who listen to the Paracast wonder, why is this guy always talking about history? It's because we haven't learned from it yet. We still see the same mistakes being made in the UFO field today. Still talking about disclosure, like Major Donald Kehoe was doing in his books in the 1950s, over 60 years ago. That hasn't changed. Are UFOs spaceships? That's what they were saying then. That's what many are saying now, although we've looked into exceptions. We're going to look today at a man that I think John Keel had considered the father of the flying saucers. And our guest who's working on a movie documentary on this guy, Dean Bertram, will tell us more. What got you involved in looking into the background of Ray Palmer? Thank you so much, Gene and Tim, for having me on the show. Firstly, I love the Paracast, so it's such an honor to be here. What got me first interested is I did my PhD in the University of Sydney in the history department there back in the, to the through the mid-2000s. And obviously, when I was writing about UFO belief and studying UFO belief, I came across not just Palmer's writings, but people like you said, John Keel, he wrote a fairly significant piece in Fortean Times back in, I think, the winter 1983 issue called The Man Who Invented Flying Saucers, which I'm shamelessly kind of <laughs> stealing for the documentary title, along with other people. Keel, in some ways, was beat to the punch. Menzel, the great skeptic, was saying that in 1963. Other authors at that time were saying, hey, we're already forgetting Ray Palmer, and he created all of this stuff. And when you go back and you look at 
the Shaver mystery to begin with, if we go back to when Ray Palmer was an editor for amazing stories from the late 30s through the late 40s, and particularly in the period where he started running letters and then articles or stories by Richard Shaver, so much of flying saucer belief was already introduced in what's really proto-UFO belief, and that was the Shaver mystery, which proposed that there were strange beings living under the ground who had advanced technology. They were ancient beings. This also predates Von Daniken, of course, but the idea that there was ancient spacefaring civilizations and these beings were still interfering with us and they had this incredible technology. And so when the flying saucers burst upon the scene with Kenneth Arnold sighting in 1947, both Shaver and Palmer said, well, we've been talking about this in the pages of Amazing. This is really just, you know, kind of validation for what we've been saying. And then, of course, Palmer hired Kenneth Arnold, the first flying saucer witness, to write for his Fate magazine, which he'd launched in 1948, as well as before that, he paid him to go and investigate the Maury Island incident, the proto-UFO crash, really, the very first one. And so you can, when you look at that, when you put it into an historical perspective, you can see the influence that Palmer had on UFO belief, even before we were calling them flying saucers. In fact, the amazing stories issue that was on the newsstands in June 1947, the all shaver mystery issue, had a piece by Vincent Gaddis, the great Fordian writer who regularly wrote for Amazing, which was essentially talking about flying saucers before we had the nomenclatures. Amazing Stories was already talking about these discs in a popular magazine, or these spaceships or these visitors from beyond the void, I think, as Vincent Gaddis called them, when Kenneth Arnold had his sightings. So Palmer was on top of this stuff from the very beginning. Now, by the way, you could still buy a copy of a reprinted version of the first issue of Fate magazine, which was co-published by Palmer and Kurt Fuller, from the current publisher, Phyllis Galdi, at fatemag.com. I don't recall what the price is. It's not a lot. It's obviously also much better printed than the original, which was on pulp paper. And that paper, if you had an original copy of that magazine, would be mostly disintegrated by now. Such was pulp paper. It's really interesting to read that because when the magazine first came out, Palmer was still working for Ziff Davis. And so he didn't put his real name on the masthead. He called himself Robert N. Webster. And then I think at one of the sci-fi conventions, he admitted who he was, of course, after he had left Ziff Davis. Yeah, that's correct. He was, he would, I think because the Shaver mystery had taken a lot of flack from the hardcore science fiction community and had written to Ziff Davis this extensive letter-writing campaign, even though the Shaver mystery had driven amazing stories to an all-time circulation high and made it one of the most popular pulps in the country. There were science fiction authors who thought science fiction should be pure fiction, I suppose, and they got very angry with the Shaver mystery. They were already angry with Palmer before that, incidentally, which I didn't know until I started looking into this documentary more because they wanted a more cerebral science fiction. Palmer was very much that Buck Rogers, you know, spaceships and fistfights type of science fiction. So they already didn't like him. There was already what was called a fan feud going on. But the Shaver mystery was the nail in the coffin. And so when finally Shaver and Palmer essentially got cancelled, or at least the Shaver mystery got cancelled by the, the noisy negativists, as Stanton Friedman would have called them, writing into Ziff Davis, seeing the writing was on the wall and also that Ziff Davis was moving to New York City and moving all its staff from Chicago, Palmer didn't want to do that move. He started, you're right, under a different name with Curtis Fuller. He started Fate Magazine. And so he, it was a, a pretty smooth transition, I guess, for him to move the more Fortean aspects of Amazing Stories, which had been increasing in the last several years, into the new Fate Magazine. So that's absolutely accurate. Now, you mentioned Vincent Gaddis, whom I knew. 
because I had a oh, magazine wow. which we called Caveat Mtor, a paranormal magazine with some new age focus. And Gaddis was an occasional contributor. We had some occasional interesting articles there. We had an interview with Ray Palmer. And you, in your preliminary version of the documentary you're working on, you have a picture of Ray Palmer seated in his rather lavish home in Amherst, Wisconsin, overlooking a river. And if you look at the background of that photo, and you won't see it there because we're not in the picture, it was taken by our old friend Rick Hilberg. And also there was Alan Greenfield, whom most listeners of the Paracast know, and also the late James Mosley and me. Just That's just incredible. Do you have any personal recollection of Palmer? I know I shouldn't be stealing the interview, but I'd love to hear if, if you have personal recollections of when you met him. Well, I do, as a matter of fact. And I'll give you mine, then we can talk about what got you into doing this documentary. Now, there have been a couple of books on Shaver and Palmer. There was one from Fred Natus, Man from Mars, about Palmer. Really good book. I recommend it. Mm -hmm. But we'll go back to 1965. So Jim Mosley and I are taking a trip to Chicago to meet up with some people. We met Rick Hilberg and Alan Greenfield there. We first visited Jacques Vallée. This is when he had come out with his first UFO book, Anatomy of a Phenomenon. And we spent about an hour with Vallée. And Jim Mosley was kind of an amateur psychologist. So after the session we got back in his rented car and he said to me you know this guy valet you know he's kind of wired there he's got some problems he was the amateur i said i have no idea i've talked to Jacques a number of times since then and i wasn't able to put a picture on that but that was jim mosley we then decided to go to amherst wisconsin and you dean have been there so you know it's you know way out in the wilderness it's a tiny town in the middle of nowhere but this show is not in the middle of nowhere because we're talking to Dean Bertram and he is working on an actual documentary about Ray Palmer, obviously covering Richard Shaver and everything. We'll get to that in a moment. With Gene and Tim, you're in The Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. 
And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork, you know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Jose works on a farm. Safety is important. His boss calls 811 to determine where it's okay to dig. This protects Jose from hitting an underground line and from serious injury. Because Jose can't tell exactly where or how deep the lines are, he doesn't dig until 811 tells him it's safe. The most important thing is that Jose works safe and goes home to his family. For more information, visit farmsafe811.org. A message from the Pipeline Operators for Ag Safety Campaign. Extendivite is more than just a heart tonic. Most basic diseases are caused by yeast in the gut and metals in the liver, and we all have a bit of both. The garlic in Extendivite has a yeast-killing effect in the gut while also helping the sulfur enzyme in the liver get rid of the metals. Extendivite just may improve your overall health. Products like Extendivite are the only way we are going to get our society healthy. And if you're waiting for the government and pharmaceutical care to solve your health problems, you're going to have a long, disappointing wait, I think. Extendivite is a complete formula for extended life in the new millennium. 80 can be the new 60. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form for just $69.95 for a two-month supply. To get started, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendivite. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp-made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right. We cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So, Jim Mosley's driving the car. I didn't have a driver's license, by the way, then. I didn't until I was 21 because I grew up in New York City where we had plenty of public transportation. And listen, if somebody else is willing to go behind the wheel, why should I learn to drive? I had to when I moved out of New York. Anyway, so we drove from Chicago towards Amherst and we got lost. We think we got lost. Jim said he had talked to Palmer the day or two before and got directions. And we couldn't figure out where he was. So we entered Amherst and there was a service station, probably the only service station. If you think 
you'd be in a small town. Dean will tell you later. Amherst was and is small. Okay. So he goes up to the service station and he announces, do you know where Ray Palmer's place is? Just out of the blue. Small town, right? He said, sure. Here's how you get there. I'm serious. When we finally got to see Palmer, his wife greeted us. She had this very protective attitude towards Palmer because obviously he was slightly crippled. It was hard for him to get around. In addition to his condition from being in an accident when he was very young, he took a fall some years earlier. And so he walked haltingly. He sat down. I took out the tape recorder. I did an interview with him about 20 minutes to half an hour. Now, the interview itself, I don't know where the tape is now. I've moved 3,000 times since then. I don't have the tape. If I can find the tape, I'll have it digitized, and you'll hear it on the Paracast. But right now, it was a pleasant interview, and we talked about Shaver and his belief in Shaver, but also he was telling us, which is true, that Shaver spent a number of years in a mental institution. But nonetheless, he believed Shaver. That started a ruckus because Shaver didn't like that. And so he wrote a response when I published the text of the interview in my magazine. He wrote a response saying, He's, he must have been taken over by the Deros or something. Wasn't very <laughs> happy with it. And you'll get into all that later. Palmer seemed like a pleasant, personable guy. I talked to him a few times on the phone after that, arranged for some radio interviews with him. Shaver, I got to know fairly well. We used to have hundreds of letters from Shaver. We had his rock books. We had a lot of contact with him. I interviewed Shaver probably a year before his death. And he was a very pleasant guy, lived in a small cottage in Summit, Arkansas. And his wife, Dorothy, served us a light dinner. Very pleasant. Very pleasant guy. You couldn't imagine meeting him that he had such strange, unusual, and what some people consider to be wacky stories. That's what I remember of Ray Palmer, except for one more thing. One more thing, and you can talk about that too, perhaps. In the mid-60s, Greenfield, Hilberg, and my old friend Marty Salkine from Brooklyn visited Major Kehoe in Luray, Virginia. That's where he lived. And the next day, we went over to NICAP's headquarters in Washington, D.C., NICAP in those days was managed by a well-known UFO researcher, Richard Hall. When the door opened and Hall knew who I was from a previous meeting, he said, you're not welcome here. (laughs) Probably because I was working with Jim Mosley as a real employee of Saucer News Magazine. And then we called Palmer and Palmer wrote an article about the episode thinking what what right did he have to be so rude to people. He called it, No Investigations Can Actually Proceed, in Flying Saucers magazine. Of course, that means NICAP, like Kehoe's organization. Did I remember enough for you? It's just fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Just amazing. I wish I could have been there, too. You have to be very old. I'm not quite... I, I was still... I was, I, it's a little bit like Palmer's story. Do you know Palmer's story about Halley's Comet? It's a fascinating story. Yeah, when he, was, when he was a baby, his recollection is, when he was living in Milwaukee, that his grandmother held him up 
and showed him Halley's Comet when he was a tiny little baby. So obviously there's already a problem because few people can remember when they were babies. But when Palmer would tell this story, people would say to him, well, that's impossible because Halley's Comet passed beyond visual, you know, ability for us to see when you were still in utero, when you were still in your, your mother's womb. And Palmer recognised that. He admitted it in his autobiography, the Martian, I believe it's called, which he published in a, a book called the, the Secret World. The Hidden World is different, obviously. That's a collection of magazines. But he said, well, it's funny because people tell me that I couldn't have seen it, but I clearly have that memory. And he had that memory. That memory was so important to him. Later in life, he says in The Martian, his autobiography, that he walked back to that. He visited that house in Milwaukee, knocked on the door and said, can I come in and just look out the front window? And he went he, he went there and he said, yep, that's the window. I remember looking out and seeing Halley's Comet. So even though he acknowledged that he couldn't have possibly been born when you could see Halley's Comet, to him it was still such a clear memory. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about Ray Palmer is his, his imagination was incredible and he was open to ideas that are normally dismissed as being impossible. And so he was able to help create and weave a fantastic mythology about flying saucers, about the Shaven Mystery, some of which may or may not be true, all of it may be true, all of it might be false, but there was something about Palmer where he was able to take the imaginal world and present it as solid, as real, as, as something which could, you know, which, which was affecting us every day. So I think that's, I think that Halley's comment story is very telling about the man, the man Ray Palmer was. Really interesting about Palmer and his history and backstory in the flying saucer field, as it was referred to then. He also got in Dutch with Project Blue Book over the Maury Island affair, as you might recall. Yes, because uh, obviously we had a situation when Maury Island was investigated, I'm sure most of your listeners know, but when Palmer paid Kenneth Arnold to go and investigate that, and after he'd received news from Fred Chrisman, who'd also written to Palmer back in the earlier shaver mystery day saying that he'd fought the deros in the caverns during world war ii but chrisman told him about this ufo crash i believe he sent some of the wreckage or the slag which spilled out of the ufo as it hovered above the shoreline to maury island to palmer and so palmer had kenneth arnold go and investigate it and when they called in air force officers the two air force officers who investigated took some of the slag with them given to them by fred chrisman and when they were flying back to the base, their plane crashed and they both tragically died. So obviously this all of a sudden became something that the Air Force took serious interest in. So yeah, they investigated Palmer, they investigated Shaver, they investigated Arnold, and there's an early FBI memo from that period which essentially says, we think Raymond Palmer and Richard Shaver are probably the people who have invented UFOs or, have, or who are driving the flying saucer craze or words to that extent. So again, that's part of the Ray Palmer mythology. Just it's, 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 it's a, Ray Palmer's life is more amazing than any amazing story that was ever in Amazing Stories. It's just an incredible, incredible, fascinating tale. And one thing we can look at here is his influence on the world of science fiction that you see today in space opera movies like the various Star Wars movies, Star Trek on TV, and Star Trek in the movies. We'll explain that in a moment. Dean Bertram working on a documentary about the man who invented flying saucers, Ray Palmer, with Gene. And Dean and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. It's all too obvious. We're being distracted by meaningless news headlines. When you dig to find the truth, you discover that the American way of life is being threatened by the institutions we used to trust. It's easy to see the future holds more food shortages, systematic controls, and government overreach. But instead of throwing up their hands, folks are preparing. They're taking steps to be self-reliant and investing in emergency food storage. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, makes it easy to get started and join the ranks with this limited-time offer. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and get their top-selling four-week emergency food kit. Enjoy tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get new lower pricing this week on these four-week emergency food kits. Secure at least one food kit for each member of your family. They ship free, too. Those who know what's coming are preparing. Smart folks. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now. MyPatriotSupply.com USA News Update. A report indicates former President Trump pressured Arizona's former governor to overturn the 2020 election results. The Washington Post reports during the presidential election, Trump called Governor Doug Ducey and encouraged him to find enough votes to overcome his loss in Arizona. At a rally Saturday in South Carolina, Trump declared he did nothing wrong by bringing classified documents to Mar-a-Lago. Twitter is limiting the number of posts users can read per day. Chairman Elon Musk announced Saturday verified users can read 6,000 posts a day, while unverified accounts can only read up to 600. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny opened with $24 million, and it's projected to make up to $60 million this weekend. But it's a slow start for a film budgeted at $300 million. Jerry Barmash, USA News. I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call. I was volunteering on a project to get locally grown food into a school. That project was a complete failure, and I discovered that there were few local farmers, there's only four days' worth of food in the grocery stores, and everything comes 1,500 miles via a just-in-time trucking system. I lost friends and family who told me I was crazy to worry about that, but I kept at it. I'm Marjorie Wildcraft. Those of us who know what's going on in the world know you need to become self-reliant before the dollar collapses. I've created a free webinar at GCNfood.com. I can show you, like I've shown hundreds of thousands of people, how to grow lots of food, even if you have no experience, you're older, or you're out of shape. Do it now before the stores are boarded up and food is not available at any price. Go to GCNfood.com, GCNfood.com. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. 
Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. This is Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Now, the reason I mentioned that, and Dean, you can go on, is that when Ray Palmer took over Amazing Stories, it had been invented by Hugo Gernsback, and he wanted it to be fiction with a solid scientific basis. That's why science fiction. Palmer wanted adventure stories, kind of like in the spirit of Edgar Rice Burroughs, where, of course, you'd have the strong, silent hero, the scantily clad damsels in distress, strange creatures, things like that. Things that Edgar Rice Burroughs did when he wrote John Carter of Mars, Carson of Venus, of course, Tarzan of the Apes, okay? So that's what we saw. These adventure stories, a lot of the famous sci-fi writers wrote for amazing stories. And when they did the movies, not, you know, Monster on the Loose, but things like Forbidden Planet, Star Trek, it was space opera, where you'd have a crew of people from Earth or elsewhere flying through space, meeting strange people, fighting battles in space and on foreign planets. A lot of that kind of science fiction, space opera science fiction, which also led to Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, all that. Palmer was one of the inventors of that style. Absolutely. And he's been, it's it's a real tragedy that I think not only has he been forgotten by so many people in the UFO community, which is a community I'm probably more familiar with, but he's been forgotten in the science fiction community as well. You mentioned Hugo Gernsback, the founder of Amazing Stories before. Of course, there was a Hugo Award for many years acknowledging Gernsback's contribution to the science fiction genre. And you're right, he essentially created the term. He called it originally science fiction or something, and then it got shortened to science fiction. And also John Campbell, who was the editor of Astounding Stories, which was essentially the main, or standing science fiction, I think is what it was. And then that's what became analog science fiction. So that was essentially Palmer's major, I suppose, competitor. And Palmer just wiped the floor with them. He he dominated the pulp scene. He, he outsold, you know, astounding at least two to one, sometimes more, I think. But we recognize Campbell as well. It's a very prestigious science fiction award. But there, there's no award for Palmer. I did introduce one, but it's at a smaller scale at a, at a genre and paranormal film festival I run in Eau Claire called Midwest Weird Fest. And now we have the Palmer D. Or Award as of last year, the Golden Palmer, just a pun on the, the Palm Dior from, from the Cannes Film Festival, of course. But for the most part, science fiction has completely forgotten Ray Palmer. And you're right, this type of sci-fi we're used to going to tentpole movies now, and incidentally, including a lot of the Marvel stuff, a lot of the Marvel stuff you can trace back to Palmer as well. In fact, the Eternal storyline is essentially the story of the Darrow and Tarot. I mean, it's almost taken a whole cloth from the pages of Amazing, not to mention the whole idea of distant spacefaring, you know, evil empires that come and clash with, you know, the heroes of Earth and all of this type of stuff. So yes, in all of the Star Wars, in all of the Battlestar Galactica, 
characters in all of the Star Treks and even the Marvel movies. Palmer's imprint is all over it. His influence is all over it. His taste is all over it. His his famous refrain, he never wanted a story to be boring. He thought a story was boring that was submitted to him. He would say, throw another body through the skylight, his giveaway line. So he was very conscious that he wanted to make stuff that was exciting, that appealed to a young readership. And in doing so, that's really what ultimately ended up getting the Shaver mystery cancelled because as i said he'd already he'd already created this incredible animosity between his way of doing it and campbell's way of doing it and the type of fans who wanted that more sedate science fiction based on the scientific realities of today and extended a little bit and imagined what it might be like in the future but that that didn't interest palmer what interested palmer was a good story now he also influenced comic books and i'll give you one example one telltale example because the character very loosely based on Palmer in one respect. That character was featured on recent TV shows, Arrow, The Flash, and Legends of Tomorrow. And the character was portrayed by Brandon Routh, who also played Superman in Superman Returns. How does a guy who's just over four feet, a hunchback, become influential in a six-foot-two hero? Well, somebody created a character called Adam, for DC Comics. Adam was a scientist who miniaturized himself in a special suit and then did his superhero stunts. And the guy who created the character named him Ray Palmer, kind of a way of paying an honor to the real Ray Palmer. So we have the fictional comic book Ray Palmer, who could be either two inches tall or six foot two, or we have the real Ray Palmer. That's more of his influence. I think it's all over. And again, unfortunately, he's been forgotten. You were right before about the Nader's book, The Man from Mars. is a, it's a great book. I, I'm also a big fan of Richard Toronto's work. I think you've had Richard on the Paracast. I seem to recall back in the day hearing that. And he, of course, did War Over Lemuria, and he did Shaverology, and he did a couple books just on Rock Fogo, Shaver's Rock Art, which are just beautiful books. And so I think there has been to a degree, a, a biographical reinterest in Palmer or people who are writing biographies. But I don't think it's, I still don't think it's penetrated the UFO community. I mean, you guys are, have your finger on the pulse of the UFO community probably better than anybody. And I imagine that you don't frequently talk to people who go, yeah, this is all, we can trace it back to Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver. Mostly they want to live him down as much as he had influence in the field. In Flying Saucers magazine, for example, he had something called Saucer Club News. So if you have a Flying Saucer Club locally, many of these people were teenagers at the time, you published your announcement. Maybe you mentioned your newsletter, you had public meetings, whatever. Almost every person who is now a close friend of mine, I met through Saucer Club News. Really oh, wow. fascinating, except for Jim Mosley. Jim Mosley I met because I bought a copy of Saucer News at the Samuel Weiser bookstore in New York, which had lots of UFO and occult titles in the 1960s. That's how I met Mosley. I met my first wife, Geneva, through a comic book called Forbidden Planet. I wrote a letter to the editor. She responded. And even though we're no longer married, we've been friends for many years. So Palmer helped me meet Alan Greenfield, Rick Hilberg, people like that. The show you're mentioning is almost 10 years ago. July 7th, 2013, with Richard Toronto. And Geneva's on hand with her remembrances. So that was a fascinating show. We'd like to get Fred Natus on, but he doesn't seem to like to answer letters. 
Yeah, I haven't reached Fred yet either. I need to, though. I've talked to Richard multiple times just via email. He's been very helpful, to be honest. Has his Doug Skinner, the literary heir of essentially of John Keel, who runs johnkeel.com, he's somebody who used to speak at the many Shaver art exhibitions which toured the country. I don't think he was involved in arranging them. I just think he spoke sometimes. He wrote a fascinating cover article for Fate magazine, I think, back in 2005, which has a, a photo of an older shaver on the front and saying, what's this, a shaver renaissance or something like that? And so he kind of foresaw, I think, because this is before either Natus's or Toronto's books had come out. Of course, Toronto had already been doing Shavertron for almost forever. But I think you, Tim, you if I recall, you're the editor of the book Richard Shaver, Reality of the Inner Earth, which was published by the late, great Tim Beckley. And that's a fantastic book. Yeah, that's correct. Yep, uh, absolutely right. Uh, Tim had a uh, a pretty big uh, collection of uh, Shaver's writings. A lot of it had never, I don't think, had ever been published any place before. So we went through them and uh, tried to find the most uh, coherent ones because a lot of his later writings just skipped all over the place and uh, and and put them together for that book. I was totally oblivious to the fact that he'd had allegedly a Darrow abduction after he moved to Summit, Arkansas. I'd never heard about that until I read that book. And it's in there, in Shaver's own hand, talking about how when he was rock hunting in Summit, Arkansas, which is where he moved to after he lived just outside of Amherst in Lanark, just down the road from Raymond Palmer. We can talk about that again a little bit as well if you guys want to. But it fascinates me that he was still, even after he got into his rock book phase, he was still having, up close towards the end of his life, still having experiences with the Darrow and the Terror. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that particular piece was something that he had written for another publication and then was never used. Hey, before we use anything else, Dean, Gene, and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. If you love mysteries, you'll love these two books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, The Others Among Us, you'll learn about the strange beings that can look like us, but are not. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll see the hard evidence of UFOs that has been ignored or even hidden. These books will definitely blow your mind, and both are now available on Amazon.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. SilverLungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at SilverLungs.com. That's SilverLungs.com.
Do the letters IRS give you anxiety? I'm Dan Pilla. I've defended people from the IRS for more than 40 years. My book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, created the tax resolution industry and is responsible for helping hundreds of thousands of people. It can help you, too. If you're a non-filer or facing IRS enforcement right now, your case is unique. You need real help, not cookie-cutter advice. My clients get my personal attention. Buy my book at danpilla.com and get a free consultation directly with me. That's danpilla.com. Let's start solving your tax problem right now. Hi, this is Jason Hansen. I'm a former CIA officer and best-selling author on safety and preparedness. The fact is, things are getting downright scary for everyone who's storing their wealth in the banks. We just saw the collapse of three major banks, and I would urge you to consider protecting your wealth ASAP. If even a tiny percentage of Americans attempt to withdraw their savings, we would see a collapse of the entire banking system, sending us into a modern-day Great Depression. Fortunately, there is a way for you to avoid this. It starts with contacting Advantage Gold. If you have an IRA or 401k, Advantage Gold can help convert those paper assets into physical gold and silver. This is the process that I recommend everybody use as a hedge against rapid inflation and to protect your retirement wealth from the banks. Take control of your financial safety today. Call 800-900-8000 to get your free gold investment kit from Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. Have you heard the warning from the dead doctors don't lie guy? I'm talking about Dr. Joel Wallach. He says if you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol or high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, or other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. That's what he says. He has a free lecture revealing what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in this free lecture called Deadly Recipe. You want it free? Call them toll-free at 855-79-YOUNG. You ready? 855-79-YOUNG. Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So, folks, if you follow Shaver Lore, I don't know how many people have. If I make a mistake on the show, it's because of the Telog rays from the Deros. <laughs> That's the reason why it's happening. You know, Shaver sent me in Geneva a lot of these rocks with some apparatus we could use to see them. And supposedly, these contain crystalline structures that recorded data. You can see pictures. And you think, well, that was kind of wacky in the 60s and 70s. And, of course, we look now at chips being made of silicon containing billions and billions of transistors. That's where we store data. So, in a sense, the rock books, in a very loose way, may have been influenced by that. As a civilization becomes more advanced, it wants to record information. And there's so much information, you have to make everything smaller and smaller and smaller. 
And I remember, for example, in the 50s running around with my transistor radio. It has five transistors. It has six. Oh, my God. My iPhone has what? 10 billion transistors? <laughs> yeah, I actually, speaking of the rock books, I've been to Shaver's property in Lanark, very close to the Ray Palmer property that you visited. I think when you were there in 65, Jen, he'd already moved to Summit, Arkansas. He was there from 49 until 63. And there's a whole story about behind why he moved as well, which is quite tragic and sad. But but I visited the farm. I went there a number of times. Nobody seemed to be at home. Somebody was finally at home and they were going to let me shoot there. And then they changed their minds because they said they didn't really like what Shaver stood for and they didn't want to be involved and they were they were Christians. Not that I think that should have anything to do with anything. You can make a documentary about somebody you don't agree with. When I stood there and I thought, this is where Shaver first discovered his rock books. In fact, this is where his wife, Dottie, first discovered the rocks, which she laid on Shaver's desk. And according to Shaver, she said something like, there's pictures in these rocks. And he just ignored her. And then when he looked at it a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later, he, it became his driving obsession from that period in the late 50s up until his death in 75. But standing on that farm... Maybe it's because I'm so interested in the material. Maybe it's because all I've done is think and read and breathe and talk about Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer for the last six months. But it was an uncanny feeling being at the home of Richard Shaver's longest home. He was, he, I believe he lived there longer than anywhere else in his life and also at the place where the rock books were first discovered. Did you ever get to talk with anybody from Palmer's family? I've met who you've also had on the Paracast in a fascinating interview. Your, your interview with Raymond B. Palmer is an incredible interview. Anybody who hasn't heard that should go and dig that out of the archives. I think that's about 10 years old now, but geez, it's a great interview. Yes, we had Tim Beckley and Raymond B. Palmer, January 13th, 2013. Yeah, it's a great show. Anyway, I did get to, it's funny, I've been to, because I'm, I found out where they both lived by pulling essentially title deeds and the local historical society helped me a little bit with the contact for Raymond B. Palmer as well, but I'd visited his house a number of times and he hadn't been at home. And I finally was driving past to go to the Shaver farm while I was still going there. And I saw, you know, a man in his 70s, still looking perfectly healthy, working in his yard. And I thought, he's finally at home. And I, you know, I pull my truck in and I, I jump out. He doesn't see me because he's, he's got a mow, like an edging kind of machine running, which is super loud. And his dog runs out first. In rural America, I mean, I'm obviously not a rural boy initially. I'm a city boy from Sydney, Australia. I'm always hypervigilant when you go somewhere and a dog runs out because dogs are guard dogs, obviously. And I'm like waving and trying to get his attention. Hello, hello. And he finally sees me and, and turns the machine off. And I think, okay, I mean, this can't be great for him just to have some weird random show up in his, in, on his property in Amherst. And I say, I just introduce myself. Hi, my name is, you know, Dean Bertram. I now live in a county over from you. I just so you know, I did my PhD work in the history of UFO belief. So I'm sure you know where this conversation <laughs> is about to go. And he did. And he was very gracious. He was very friendly. He told me fascinating stories about looking for rocks with shaver. Some of those stories he tells on, on, of course, your show as well. And it was just wonderful to get to meet and shake the hand of Ray Palmer's son. I hope he will be in the documentary. I still have to have another meeting with him. We're having later in the summer and discussing it. But to have Raymond B. Palmer in the documentary would just be, it'd be a dream come true, to be honest. It's too bad he didn't inherit his father's writing talent and be able to continue to produce that. When Palmer died in the 1970s, 
And I think he knew within a year of his death that he didn't have long for this world. There were lots of unpublished stuff that his wife put out for a while. So you could still get the magazines, as I said, at least for a while. What I do think he inherited from his father is... I never met, as you were fortunate enough to, Raymond A. Palmer, but I've heard about the famous twinkle in Ray Palmer's eye, Ray Senior Ray A. Palmer's eye, from a number of people, including Richard Toronto from things he'd heard, including people I've spoken to in Amherst who knew, Raymond A. Palmer. And there was that twinkle in Raymond B. Palmer's eye as well, along with, I think, an ability to feel different ideas about what flying sources might be. I think often Raymond A. Palmer is dismissed as somebody who is somehow just profiteering off the Shaver mystery and off flying sources. But my understanding, having researched fairly extensively now, when I did my PhD, I didn't research that extensively. I was just more interested in the ideas and the individual. But from what I can tell, he was a, Raymond A. Palmer was somebody who had a genuine curiosity about the weird. I mean, he published the, how do you pronounce the Wapsie Bible? as well he he thought that maybe this had something to do with the flying sources he thought maybe shaver's interpretations of physical darrow and terror were just misinterpretations of a spiritual reality but he was also happy to play with other hypotheses about the sources as well and speaking briefly for that probably 20 minutes i've gotten to speak with raymond b palmer so far I found that in him as well. I I found him quite open. I found him, he didn't seem to be, you know, have any serious doctrine he was trying to push. He had a genuine curiosity. And people listen to that interview on your show. I think that genuine curiosity and lack of a a, a doctrinaire type of approach to it is apparent there as well, as I believe it was in Raymond A. Palmer, Raymond B.'s father. Well, Raymond A. would also publish different ideas and then see what the readers thought about it. And I met up with an old friend of Palmer's, Otto Binder, well-known sci-fi writer and well-known wow. comic book script writer. And he wrote the scripts for the original character, Captain Marvel, before it became known as Shazam. In wow. fact, allegedly, and I haven't had a confirmation because Otto's been dead for many years, he wrote about a character called the Scorpion, a villain. They adapted that when Republic Pictures filmed the Adventures of Captain Marvel in 1941. And I know there's been a couple of Shazam movies with Zachary Levi in recent years, but they aren't one-tenth as good as this 1941 movie serial that you can see in all 12 chapters on YouTube free. In fact, the flying scenes are pretty darn decent also. For 1941, and the guy who played Captain Marvel, Tom Tyler, a Western star, looked the part. More so, I think, than George Reeves looked the part of Superman. And anyway, to get back to Otto, Otto told me a couple of times that Palmer would deliberately write outlandish or unusual ideas in his magazines to get the readers to react, even though he may not have taken them seriously. But that was a big point he made. Oh, by the way, Otto Binder also invented Supergirl. And Otto Binder, I think, is who Ray Palmer got uh, Space World magazine off when he later acquired that magazine. It was one of the later mags that he that he published. That's correct. But but speaking of serials, I mean, all of that, I didn't know a lot of that about Binder, by the way, just fascinating. But I don't think many people have talked about 
the fact that there was a Gene Autry serial in 1935 called The Phantom Empire. And The Phantom Empire is very shaver-esque. It deals with this civilization that you reach by going down, down, down into the caverns via a secret elevator who can look at the surface of the earth with their machines, who fire weapons to, like, crash planes and do other things, who kidnap surface beings who know too much about them. And while there are other recognized influences on Shaver that he himself talked about, he talked about A. Merritt, for example, the author of The Moon Pool, which is an interesting um, fantasy sci-fi type novel, that horror novel, which also impacted H.P. Lovecraft. But Shaver talked about that being his major influence. In fact, in his second story in Amazing Stories, after I Remember Lemuria, the next story where they kind of drop the shield that it's just somehow an ancient racial memory that Shaver's actually been involved with these beings. He talks about Merritt being a major influence. But all of that aside, yeah, the, the serial... If nobody's seen it, I think it's free on YouTube. It's like the copyrights are lapsed now. We've got more to come with Dean and Gene and Tim, you're in. The Pericast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. What if people always acted the same way they do when they're driving their cars? Good morning, Mrs. Blanchard. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check. Sure. I'll just get my pen Come here. Come on, and... lady. Get a move on. Goodness. Where'd you learn to bank anyway? Whoa, don't you give me that look. It sure wouldn't be a very friendly place. What kind of candy do you want, sweetie? This. No, no, no. This. Pick something already. Come on, honey. We're holding people up. How about this kind? No. What is the matter with you people? If you're not going to do something, I am. Get out of my way. <laughs> Every day, drivers and their families all across the country are killed on the roadways because of road rage. Wasn't it a beautiful wedding? Oh, yes, and they make such a lovely couple. Excuse me, is this the receiving line? Yes, it is. Hey, he cut in line. I'm a friend of the bride. Do you know the Hey, pal, you cut in line. Buzz off. Oh, yeah? He hit that nice man. That'll teach you to cut in line, you jerk. Stop the senselessness of road rage. It's time we all drive with the same courtesy we extend to people in the rest of our lives. A message from the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. 
To show you how fast you work on the PowerCast, I did look it up. They do have a version of the Phantom Empire over four hours worth, which means all the chapters in this serial are strung together in one presentation. From 1935, they've got a lot of those on YouTube. In fact, they now have The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original one with Michael Rennie, free with ads on YouTube. So as far as that movie serial with Gene Autry, I wasn't much of a Gene Autry fan. Well, we associate it always with Western, but this story is about Gene Autry. He has his ranch where he does his show from, and somehow they irritate this phantom empire. I can't even remember how. I've, I've watched the series. But then they want to get Gene Autry, and they're sending up these, you know, cavern dwellers to try to kidnap Autry, and his, you know, his teenage sidekicks get involved. And it's a typical Gene Autry, you know, kind of adventure. But it's with these underground-dwelling humanoid but non-human beings. Fascinating, really. I'm looking at it right now. There's several different releases of The Phantom Empire. One is where they have all 12 chapters in separate files, or they have it as one file strung all together. So you can see yeah, it either think, way. I'll have to I watch it now after this. I think that they did a movie release as well where they kind of cut it down to an hour and a half or something where you can watch the condensed version. But something else interesting about that is, of course... Shaver called the Darrow and the Taro, who were the good guys and the bad guys, essentially. The Darrow stood for robots, and that didn't mean physical robots. It meant they were kind of influenced by other forces. But fascinatingly, in that Phantom Empire, Gene Autry versus the Phantom Empire um, uh, series, there are actual robots walking around down in the caverns. And I, you, you have to wonder, did... Shaver himself see this? He may very well have. Did this affect the way he decided to describe these beings? The same way I suspect that so much of the type of science fiction you were talking about a moment ago, The Day the Earth Stood Still, such a wonderful movie, but that iconic beginning where we see a distant light in the sky get closer to us and turn into the perfect idealized flying saucer disc and land in Washington. I think that began what is still an ongoing trope in science fiction movies, that the light in the sky in the distance becomes a flying source when it's close up. And I think that has a lot to do with when people see an anomalous light in the sky, their go-to suspicion of what it is is a flying disc. And this isn't to take away anything from a genuine reality of flying sources or whatever the anomalous phenomena might be, because I think there's a number of anomalous phenomena that add to the flying saucer mystery. But I do believe that popular culture interpretations have an incredible impact on the way that people understand the experiences that they have. I'm looking here at the poster for The Phantom Empire, and it says, Nat Levine presents Gene Autry, the world-famed star of radio and screen in The Phantom Empire. It's produced by a company called Mascot. And I don't remember that company. I know there were a number of companies producing B-films, movie serials and such. Mostly, of course, we recognize Republic Pictures for Adventures of Captain Marvel and King of the Rocket Men and Commando Cody, Sky Marshal of the Universe. Columbia produced the two Superman serials. Yeah, check, check out the series when you have a chance, Gene, because I think you'll be quite staggered that this was in the cowboy genre, but it lays out so much of 
the shaver mystery to follow. It's quite strange to watch. And remember also, and I'm going to watch it, this is 1935. And the shaver mystery didn't come into amazing stories until the early 1940s. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think the the very first letter that was published in Amazing from Shaver, and it was at the very towards the very end of their their letter section. I believe that was the January forty five issue, and then that alphabet that Shaver suggested, which was somehow a proto alphabet, much the way that Ignatius Donnelly suggested similar things with Atlantean alphabets. You know, a hundred years before or eighty years before. Um, that sparked off all kinds of interest in the Amazing Stories letters section, but Shaver's first story, I Remember Lemuria, appears, I believe, in like March or May of 45. So, yeah, you're right. This is literally 10... The Shaver mystery really properly kicks off 10 years after the Gene Autry story, of Gene Autry and the Phantom Empire. And you can't think here that Shaver was influenced by Gene Autry. Can you imagine if he was? I mean, he, he acknowledged some of his influences. Again, he acknowledged A. Merritt as an influence. In the second Shaver story, an amazing, he, he says he has a, he had the, has an introduction before the story where he says, Merritt is the major influence on me, and I think the moon pool and other stories is Merritt having experiences with the cavern people, and he's not prepared to say that it's real, so he's disguised it as fiction. There's a long history, though, of... Um hollow earth beliefs, cultures, things like that, long before, you know, the, uh, 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 the, the 20th century. I mean, you can go back as far as uh, was Edmund Haley, you know, uh, uh, looking into the idea that the earth was actually hollow with uh, uh, um, spheres inside, like a, uh, like a Russian nesting doll. But then you have people like Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote the uh, Pelusidar series, and I mean, you, you know, you know that these early writings had a connection with what later came on in uh, uh, science fiction, starting in the 30s and 40s. Now, when Burroughs wrote those stories, his first novel had an introductory segment where he basically recounts the factual legends of a hollow earth before he tells his story. So he was paying attention to the literature before he wrote these things. Well, there had been a resurgence of, of interest at around that time that Burroughs uh, started writing those books with, with The Hollow Earth. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. Everybody no, you does. Tim, I, you can get in line. No, I'd love... <laughs> I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear what you say, Tim, because I know you've actually published a, like, and edited books along these lines. So you you you're a real fountain of wisdom as far as this stuff goes. Oh well, but this is your show today, and no one wants to uh, uh, listen to me. Well, we'll, we'll have to talk off air about it because I'd love to pick your brains more. <laughs> but you're absolutely right as far as the long tradition of Hollow Earth history. Ironically, when I first wrote my PhD dissertation, I did a whole chapter on hollow earth beliefs and how they predated much of ufology and shaver was in there a little bit but then i i the, the dissertation changed a little bit and the hollow earth theory disappeared but of course bulwer lytton as well wrote the book the coming race which is a very popular book in the 19th century some think some esoteric elements of nazism or proto-nazis took on board as literal truth 
about the real energy. There was a real society in 1930s Germany where they took a lot of this stuff to be factually true. I suspect Shaver also read The Coming Race because his tarot, which is the good people again, cavern people, his tarot lover, Nedia, I believe her name is, is taken from the name of a character in another Bulwer-Lytton novel. I think The Last Days of Pompeii that's taken from. So I suspect Shaver, who was surprisingly well-read for somebody whose background was, you know, um, in many ways working class, which is the, which is a fascinating, I mean, we could talk about some of those things as well. There's, there's, there's a, something fascinating about Shaver's biography, but he was so well-read. I can't believe that he didn't encounter that. The Time Machine as well, the Morlocks, of course, the H.G. Wells novel, they're very much like the Darrow, preying on the surface people. Um, and it goes all the way back to biblical and pre-biblical tales about Gehenna and Hades and the ideas that there are malevolent beings that live under the earth. And I think that's why John Keel said, well, the Shaver mystery is just another is just another another devil theory. And I've and I've always been a massive fan of John Keel, but something I've I've been conscious of the more I've read primary Shaver and Palmer contributions to the field in the last six months is that Shaver and Palmer were suggesting in the 1950s things that Keel and Valet weren't suggesting until the late 60s and the 70s. We're going to have more with Dean and Tim and Gene. You're in. Oh, the Pentecost. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Hi, this is Jason Hansen. I'm a former CIA officer and best-selling author on safety and preparedness. The fact is, things are getting downright scary for everyone who's storing their wealth in the banks. We just saw the collapse of three major banks, and I would urge you to consider protecting your wealth ASAP. If even a tiny percentage of Americans attempt to withdraw their savings, we would see a collapse of the entire banking system, sending us into a modern-day Great Depression. Fortunately, there is a way for you to avoid this. It starts with contacting Advantage Gold. If you have an iron or 401k, Advantage Gold can help convert those paper assets into physical gold and silver. This is the process that I recommend everybody use as a hedge against rapid inflation and to protect your retirement wealth from the banks. Take control of your financial safety today. Call 800-900-8000 to get your free gold investment kit from Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. 8,000. A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. 
six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our responsibility. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call. I was volunteering on a project to get locally grown food into a school. That project was a complete failure, and I discovered that there were few local farmers, there's only four days' worth of food in the grocery stores, and everything comes 1,500 miles via a just-in-time trucking system. I lost friends and family who told me I was crazy to worry about that, but I kept at it. I'm Marjorie Wildcraft. Those of us who know what's going on in the world know you need to become self-reliant before the dollar collapses. I've created a free webinar at GCNfood.com. I can show you, like I've shown hundreds of thousands of people, how to grow lots of food, even if you have no experience, you're older, or you're out of shape. Do it now, before the stores are boarded up and food is not available at any price. Go to GCNfood.com. GCNfood.com. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNhemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right. We cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNhemp.com or call 877-878-4203. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Fascinating, Dean, how Palmer and Shaver were saying a lot of these things first before others got on the bandwagon. Yeah, like I, I think it's. I've always been such a fan of Keel and Valet. If when I did my PhD work, I was very, you know, objective. I didn't come down one way or another on what the phenomenon might really be. I was more interested in the belief systems around it. But my sympathies lean towards a Keel or a Valet type interpretation of what the UFO phenomenon might be. And when you you think that people like Valet first introduced the idea of it being like the fairy faith or like fairies in the 1969 wonderful book passport to magonia of course keel said very similar things in his work around that time and throughout the early to mid 70s as well but you can read old mystic magazines from the 1950s where palmer and shaver are saying this is like fairy faith this is the same thing and i only discovered that kind of recently i hadn't read a lot i hadn't read all the second i still haven't there's so much material the primary material from shaver and palmer but they were throwing out these ideas before the new ufology of the post condon committee started coming up with these alternative interpretations and to me that's just amazing that they had their fingers even on this type of pulse so there's so much to learn by going back and looking at the history of writings in the ufo field and i'm sure there's other writers where we could go back and find amazing things from as well but when you when you zoom in on palmer and shaver to see how they were not only influencing the early field but in some some ways how far they were ahead of the early field before we go on i just want to mention something about gene archery 
His first cousins twice removed are Dennis Quaid and Randy Quaid. Fascinating. Get out. That is fascinating. Maybe we can make a, a Palmer Shaver movie and cast one of those guys as a shaver. But we were talking a little bit before about Shaver's, I suppose, working class kind of background. And I mean, I don't know how much new I've discovered doing the documentary work. Because again, people like Natus, particularly Richard Toronto, Doug Skinner, these people have been all over this for decades now, and they've done a very good job. Again, people should read Richard Toronto's books if they want to really have a firm understanding of the Shaver mystery and of Ray Palmer's influence on these things and what was going on. Go and start with War Over Lemuria because it's such an amazing book. But I don't think any of the biographers had gone to Amherst or Lanark. I know you did, Gene, back in the day, but I don't think anybody who's done biographical research since they've both passed, Palmer and Shaver, have bothered. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's so far from anywhere. And it, it might seem insignificant to go there. But I think some of the things I've found there weren't really known before. And I think some of these things change the dynamic of the story a little bit. The popular history of Shaver and Palmer both moving to Amherst, Wisconsin, or Lanark, just outside of Amherst, was that when the Shaver mystery came to a kind of grinding halt, Shaver decided to return to his farmer-type roots and buy property in Lanark. And when he moved there, Ray Palmer and his family visited him a couple times. And Ray Palmer, who also wanted to kind of get out, he certainly wasn't going to be moving to New York City, as I said before. He didn't want to do that. Liked the area so much that he later followed Shaver about a year later. But I went and pulled the deeds from Portage County, deeds office or whatever the, that office is called in the United States. And they bought those properties within a mile of each other, within a month of each other. And when I found that out, I rang my friend Jason McLean, who co-hosts a show called Mysterious Library with me. But his background is he's an escrow officer for real estate closing. And I told him this is the traditional story that, you know, Shaver moved first and Palmer visited a couple of times and then he decided. And he was like, with a month closed with two different properties, that's shorter distance. That's a simultaneous close. Those people essentially, particularly in those days when it took a long time to do transfers and send contracts and whatever else, that's like they bought that at the same time. So Palmer and Shaver must have been so close that they'd scouted rural Wisconsin, found two properties within a mile of each other, and bought those properties within a month of each other. That indicates how close that relationship was. Who moves to the middle of nowhere with a friend unless that friend is incredibly close to you? Tim. Well, once uh, once Palmer and Shaver moved to Amherst, what happened then? I mean, did uh, 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 Palmer set up a, a publishing company there? Yeah, that's where he ran. Well, he'd started Fade, of course, in 1948 while he was still based in Chicago with Curtis Fuller. And he still edited that. Uh, at first, he had to edit it under another byline because he was still contracted to Ziff Davis. And I don't think he wanted to give the game away that he'd kind of coordinated this move. But when Shaver moved to Amherst, absolutely, he, he continued with Fate for a little while. And then he had a publishing company. He had a couple. He had, I think, Am Amherst Press, which published Coming of the Sources. So that was his book wing of the publishing company. He had Palmer Publications as well. And he started other magazines. Of course, he started Search Magazine, which was kind of in a weird way 
competition to fate, but he when he launched that, he said, well, this is kind of, I'll publish here in this magazine things that there aren't really any proof for, but but I don't want to do that in fate, so I'll do this other magazine. And then he started flying sources from other worlds, and he went on to publish a number of different magazines, including Ray Palmer's Forum, which is fascinating, very hard to get a copy of. Now, thanks to Richard Toronto, I have almost a complete set of Ray Palmer's Forum, which includes a lot of writings from Shaver, where people just write in and trade ideas. It was a subscription-only magazine, absolutely fascinating. So, yes, Palmer continued publishing that type of material. He also was a genuine businessman in the town. Like, they they printed things for other people, like things like, you know, church newsletters. He started a local paper in Amherst, Wisconsin. He became a part of that community. The people I've talked to in Amherst so far, they – of that of that vintage they all remember ray palmer very fondly he was a major part of the community like i've talked to the the daughter of the owner of fleming's cafe which is still there in amherst and she was working for her mother catherine fleming when ray palmer would visit every morning on his way to the post office and have a coffee and sometimes tell strange stories thanks to richard toronto for that as well that's how i found out he initially went there by war over lemuria so i went to fleming's i've spoken to other people who remember ray and his family, and they say particularly Marjorie, his wife and his children were at church all the time. I can't remember if Ray was, but <laughs> his wife <laughs> and his children were, who went to the same church. I've spoken to multiple people who had the famous swimming lessons because Ray and his wife, as you saw when you were there, Gene, they lived in front of this beautiful river which widened out to almost a lake in front of their house or in between their property because they had, they had houses on both sides of the lake. They had the initial farmhouse, which Ray eventually ran some of his offices out of, and they bought the beautiful house. I think you visited, Gene, on the other side. But they, they had swimming lessons there for the local children. So they were a massive part of the local community. So, yeah, Ray still, Ray still published. Ray still, Ray's life was a... A, a vital, significant member of the Amherst community throughout the rest of his life after he moved there. She helped him run the business too. I know when we'd made some arrangements to resell some of Ray's books for commission, I dealt with her about that. We've got more about Palmer Shaver and everything with Dean and Jean and Tim Uren. Podcast. <laughs> listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. Silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at Silverlungs.com. That's Silverlungs.com. Are you a business owner? Are you confused by the complexity of the tax laws? We can help. I'm Dan Pilla, and I've been helping business owners solve tax problems for over 40 years. My book, The Small Business Tax Guide, shows proven ways to avoid all the common business tax problems. Don't risk your business. Go to danpilla.com to order your copy. That's danpilla.com. Order now and get a free 15-minute call directly with me, a $99 value. Go to danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com.
USA News Update. Members of the white supremacist group The Proud Boys are being fined over a million dollars for vandalism. In 2020, several members burned a Black Lives Matter sign and tore down a banner at a predominantly black church in Washington. A man with an active warrant related to the January 6th riot is due in court Wednesday after being arrested near former President Obama's Washington, D.C. home. Secret Service officials detained the 37-year-old suspect Thursday within blocks of the home. Federal prosecutors say a search of Taylor Toronto's van parked nearby turned up two guns, 400 rounds of ammunition, and explosives. Another bus full of migrants has been transported from Texas to California. On Saturday, 41 migrants arrived in Los Angeles. It's the second busload from Texas in the past two weeks. Jerry Barmash, USA News. It's all too obvious. We're being distracted by meaningless news headlines. When you dig to find the truth, you discover that the American way of life is being threatened by the institutions we used to trust. It's easy to see the future holds more food shortages, systematic controls, and government overreach. But instead of throwing up their hands, folks are preparing. They're taking steps to be self-reliant and investing in emergency food storage. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, makes it easy to get started and join the ranks with this limited-time offer. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and get their top-selling four-week emergency food kit. Enjoy tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get new lower pricing this week on these four-week emergency food kits. Secure at least one food kit for each member of your family. They ship free, too. Those who know what's coming are preparing. Smart folks. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now. MyPatriotSupply.com Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, formerly Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, Air National Guard and Reservist. I'm looking for veterans, active duty military personnel to join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. She needs your skills, courage, and loyalty more than ever. Contact GCNteam.com. Because of the financial and health care collapse, veterans are currently struggling finding jobs. Frustrated looking for a job? Change your tactics. Join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. Start a health care business with FDI Longevity 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com immediately. We're looking for military specialists who can use a computer and communicate information and execute a battle plan. Join the admirals, Navy SEALs, Marines, pilots, Army officers, military police, sheriffs, police officers, firemen, and first responders already enrolled in the 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com now. FDI Longevity will help you apply your military skills to the task of saving America through health and financial programs. Contact GCNteam.com. Enlist in GCNteam.com and save America. This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Now, the one thing that sort of surprised me when we first visited Palmer is he frequently, in the final years of his publications, would say that, you know, he wanted people to buy things because they needed to bring in cash. He wasn't making the same amount of cash as he did when he was younger. But when you saw this house, and as you mentioned, there are two of them, this large home overlooking a river, the Tomorrow River, which is what he named his company, Tomorrow River Press, it was a big house. It was an expensive house, at least if you bought it in some place that had more than 500 population. So obviously he had a good real estate portfolio there, if nothing else. 
Well, I, I can tell you an interesting story about that as well. You're right. He built a house. Don't forget this is after Amazing when he was getting real you know, big coin. He was the, he wasn't just the editor of Amazing. He was editor, I believe, the overarching editor of the entire fiction group of Ziff Davis. Like Palmer was making buck when he was in Chicago. So I suppose he probably came to Amherst with some real money. I think later probably he was going through the difficulties of publishing a magazine as paper prices got higher, as postal prices got higher, and he faced all of those things. In the area, according to Toronto, he was thought of as the locals thought, oh, this must be some rich, you know, outsider from Chicago. So I suppose there was probably that genuine perception. A local I talked to who's now moved to Arizona, who's a very successful businessman, he's in his 70s now, and he couldn't wait to get out of small-town rural Wisconsin. But he remembers Palmer and Shaver both. He knew both of them. And the point he made was where they bought was very cheap. It was very affordable. And sure enough, the deed seemed to kind of suggest that as well as far as the prices that they paid. Because, and this is the kicker, this is the fascinating part, because the ground was so rocky there. Still, when you drive the back route I go, when I go and visit Amherst, when you drive the small two-lane county road, it's not even a county road, it's like a back road, there are still piles of boulders and piles of rocks along farmer fields, piles of boulders and rocks in front of driveways. People still have to dig out all of this rock whenever they do anything. So there's something kind of ironic that both Palmer and Shaver bought here, probably because the land was so affordable, because it was very difficult to farm there. And it's the rocks which give Shaver essentially his new lease on intellectual life for the last 20 years of his life, because they moved to an area where you'd wander along a farmer's field and there'd be rocks everywhere. So I found that fascinating. That's something I was I was just delighted with when I discovered. I think about the logistics, though, of having a printing press for all the different publications that uh, that he had at that time in Amherst at a time when the roads were probably weren't nearly what they are now. Trying to you know bring in the materials and then ship everything out again. Not like Chicago. It must have been a shock. I was saying this the other day when I was talking to the old Amherst resident who I left and became very, who I believe became very successful. And I was saying, I, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I ran film festivals and I was, you know, I wrote for a number of magazines and newspapers and I was a very social person. See, people seem to think that Ray Palmer, because of his accident, was kind of very withdrawn. But he was super social when he was in Chicago. He had his his tight crew who he ran in the you know the the Ziff Davis offices, and they would go for long lunches and they'd have poker games. And as you can imagine, being an editor of that prowess, you had a heck of a social life when you were in Chicago. And since I've moved here, this is a bit of a personal anecdote, I guess. I love living in rural Wisconsin. I love the peace. I love raising my daughter here. But I'm very conscious that it's a very different life to somebody who's engaged in the arts and journalism in Sydney, Australia, as it would have been even more so, I would think, in the late 1940s, early 50s, when Palmer first moved to Amherst. So when I'm here, I often think in these snowy, you know, we're snowed in days, I think about exactly what you were saying to him. It's tough for me now when I've got like, you know, a decent snowblower and the county plows my roads efficiently every day. And I wonder what it was like for Palmer and Shaver when they landed in the middle of nowhere in 1949 without any of those benefits. I wonder what they what they sat around and thought about in the long winters and how much 
their imaginations continued to percolate because they already had incredible imagination. So imagine that scenario when their imaginations were running in overdrive for four months of the year. Fast question here. How big a town are you living in? What's the population? The town closest to me is 900, and I don't live in town. I live probably about seven, eight minutes from the closest town near me. So I'm in, literally in the middle of nowhere. Okay, so if you want to go shopping to a supermarket, is there a nearby Walmart or Kroger's or something? The closest Walmart is probably about 35 minutes from where I live. Okay, so you can't go very often. No, and it, it, there's a romantic element to that. It's a little bit of an aside, but I kind of like the idea that going to town is kind of, I guess, what it was like 100 years ago. Like, you know, we don't go to town every day, my daughter and I. We go maybe every week. <laughs> you know, like, well, let's go to town. Let's do the shopping. Something special. Like right now, I want to go to Walmart. It's six minutes away. Exactly. So, of course, you don't wait for the entire week. You say, oh, I guess I could use some paper towels or maybe some <laughs> fake butter. I can't believe it's butter or whatever the fake butter is that day. And you go over there. It's a six-minute drive. You know, it just about gets the car warm. Well, that was me in Sydney. That's exactly my background. Like I would, I'd be walking distance from supermarkets. You know, you, if you wanted to be healthy, you wouldn't even jump in the car. You go, okay, I'll walk less than 10 minutes and go shopping, you know, and grab a couple of things and walk home. But yeah, I was talking to a friend recently in Australia who was going to visit. And they were like, how far are you cooking? Walk to town in like 30 minutes. I can go, you can walk to town, the little town near me in a few hours. <laughs> you know, if you want to walk to the big town, you might want to camp overnight halfway or something. <laughs> so if you want a pizza or Chinese food, what do you do? Yeah. yeah, that's a problem. In fairness, the gas station, which is part of the little town I mentioned, which is about eight minutes from here, they do do pizza in that gas station. And I remember when I first moved here, somebody said, try the pizza gas station. I thought, this gas, this pizza is going to just be awful. It's gonna, I don't, but I'll try it. And I had, and I'm like, my goodness, this is some of the nicest pizza I've ever had. So maybe they have to make it so nice because they want to keep the locals happy. I don't know. Don't think I can live in a town that isolated anymore. The smallest town I lived in was way back thousands of years ago in Wyndham, Minnesota, which is a couple of thousand people. And you had a real town. Of course, we lived in an apartment right across from the main street. And therefore, it was no problem to go to the supermarket or to a local restaurant or something. But we're talking here about a couple hours drive from Minneapolis, St. Paul. The current population of Wyndham, Minnesota is 4,646. So it was like 2,500 when I lived there many years ago. And again, if you did not live near the center of town as we did, you wouldn't be able to easily get to the grocery store without driving there. So we could walk to the grocery store. I don't know about the restaurants. In those days, we mostly ate at home. Oh, well, I don't know where we're getting into this. Why did you choose to want to make a documentary about Ray Palmer? In, in many ways, because of my locality, I was, I'd obviously recognized him back when I submitted my dissertation, I think in 2006. And in that book, in that, that manuscript, I had said how important he was. I'd agreed, I didn't invent it. I mean, people, like I said, like Menzel and Keel and even the FBI had said before me how important he was to the development of flying saucer belief. So I was just retreading ground and I acknowledged that those type of people had said this before and I knew how important he was. Anyway, one day 
I do a couple of shows on the Untold Radio Network, and I do a show called Mysterious Library with Jason McLean. And I said, hey, let's do the Shaver Mystery. Let's do I Remember Lemuria. That will be fun. And he was like, okay. And so I went back and started reading a lot more of the original materials, and I started listening to old recordings, like the famous Long John Nebel recording where Shaver and Palmer are talking to essentially the proto-art bell, Long John Nebel, back in like, I don't know, the late 50s or early 60s or something, and the name Amherst came came up. And then I'm like, well, that's interesting, Amherst, Wisconsin. I wonder how far that is from me. Before we find out more about his discovery of Palmer and Shaver, We've got Dean, we've got Gene, we've got Tim, you're in. The Better Guest. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s dot com if you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity this will be the most important message you'll hear this year here's why we now have a small number of solar generators back in stock these emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. I'm Ben Utech. I played high school, college, and pro football, helping my team win the 2006 championship. It was an amazing day, but it can't compare to the joy I feel every day with my loving wife and three beautiful daughters. My football career ended after I suffered my fifth concussion. Did you know that over a million athletes suffer a concussion each year? That includes boys and girls, every age, every type and level of sport. It isn't always clear that a player has had a concussion. So parents, athletes and coaches need to learn about concussion signs and symptoms. The American Academy of Neurology recommends athletes thought to have a concussion be immediately removed from play and not returned until assessed by a healthcare professional trained in concussion. This isn't just about sports. It's about your brain. When in doubt, sit it out. Learn more at aan.com slash concussion. That's aan.com slash concussion. 
a message from the American Academy of Neurology. Wellness and self-care doesn't have to be complicated. So keep it simple and take good care of yourself with Sunny Bay Heating Pads. Our heating pads soothe pains in the neck, back, and shoulders while relaxing muscles and increasing blood circulation. Sunny Bay Heating Pads have always been made in the USA and hand-filled to perfection with the highest quality materials. Sunny Bay Heating Pads are the perfect wellness gift for loved ones or yourself. See all of our high-quality products at sunny-bay.com including heated body pads, neck pillows, heated neck and body wraps, and our stress-reducing lavender line. They're all affordable, durable, and in stock now and ready for immediate shipping direct from sunny-bay.com. Read our trusted, authentic, and real reviews at sunny-bay.com or just search for Sunny Bay Heating Pad. To your good health and wellness from Sunny Bay. Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. Now, Long John Neville was the first Art Bell. He started a show in the 50s called Party Line on WOR in New York City. WOR, frequency 710, was what we call a clear channel station. Not the company clear channel, but because... It was so far distant from any other station on the same frequency, you could hear it through half the country. So Long John built up a big audience. And he really went far when he started bringing in the flying saucer people and the psychics. And he had everybody who was anybody in the UFO field, from George Adamski to get to the wacky part of the world, to Jim Mosley, of course, and Ray Palmer, Richard Chaver, as you know. So just to give you the background, go ahead, please. Well, yeah, so I I was reading in the lead up to the episode I was talking about, I was reading, I believe, old amazings of Flying Saucer magazines. I think it was a Flying Saucer magazine. And I was listening to a Long John Nebel, that broadcast with Palmer and Shaver in the background, and Amherst came up. And I'm like, how far can Amherst be from where I am? Amherst, Wisconsin. I think I knew Palmer was from Wisconsin, but I didn't know much about his background. I knew more about the theories that he put forward. I kind of wrote an intellectual history more than a personal history about the people, the early founders of Flying Saucer. Saucer. So I plugged it into Google Maps as one does, and I'm like, Amherst is like, I could drive there in under 50 minutes to where I think Shaver lived It's and Palmer lived. I didn't know Shaver lived there at this phase because I hadn't read any of the Toronto bios or anything. They'd come out after I'd finished my dissertation. And I thought, my goodness, that's close. And then the idea started, I guess, percolating. I'm like, I could do a documentary about Ray Palmer because I have a background in some filmmaking. I run film festivals. I've produced some narrative features before. And I thought I could do a documentary about Palmer because he literally – lived down the road from me. So then I started, you know, contacting the obvious people, the local historical society. I realized there's Palmer biographies I've never read by Natus and by Toronto and by, you know, other people. I start to read more of the secondary material. And then I'm like, there's a story to be told here. And the more I read about Palmer and Shaver, the more I realized their story is as interesting as anything they ever wrote. So I got the bug. I guess I got caught by the Shaver bug, which I think happens sometimes in the Palmer bug. And I just wanted to deal with it in in a documentary medium i suppose i know we've kind of uh of skirted around it a little bit uh in in previous uh discussions on the show but 
tell us a little bit about Palmer's background. I mean, what was he like as a kid? What you know, what what happened to him as a kid that caused him to later develop this this interest not only in science fiction but in you know uh, publishing. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mentioned before the Halley's Comet thing. So there's something about Palmer that he had a wonderful imagination and he also thought he was important and special and he clearly was incidentally. But much like Mark Twain who came in on the comet and went out in the comet, Palmer thought he came in on the comet and was going to go out in the comet. He died too early for that unfortunately. But when he was young, not long after that Halley's Comet story, he was recognized as something like the most beautiful baby in Milwaukee or some such. And he was featured on milk caps as, you know, the poster child of milk or something in Milwaukee. And I I think he came from a kind of working class family. I believe there were problems in the home, as I suppose most, goodness knows, most homes seem to have problems these days. But the defining moment of his young life, other than Halley's Comet story, was he was playing in the suburb he lived in of Milwaukee and he was playing near a truck. And for some reason he got his legs, I think he put between the spokes of the truck. I think in those days they were literally like wooden spokes. Vehicles had like weird spokes on the tires and different stories say it was a beer delivery truck or a milk delivery truck or a grocery delivery truck. Regardless, it was a truck and the truck driver took off with Palmer's legs in the, the spokes and it, spun Palmer and pounded the seven-year-old Palmer into the cement or the bitumen or whatever it was again and again and again. And the driver eventually heard something screaming or somebody screaming behind him and he stopped and he got out and there was this terribly injured little boy stuck in the back wheels of his truck. Now the driver picked up the boy. I guess he talked to other kids in the neighborhood and said, where's this boy from? Who is he? And they pointed him at the house and he took the child home. His father was at home at the time, who was quite poor. And he said, I'm so, I'm a couple, you know, I'm so sorry, as you can imagine. He said, can I take the boy to a hospital for you? Can I drive you guys to the hospital? And the tragedy is that Palmer's father didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't think he could afford to pay for hospitalization. So he said, no, it's just a bruise. Let's lie him oh. out on the couch. And so they lay him out on the couch. And as you can imagine, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and eventually he was hospitalized, and eventually there was a very early attempt at doing some type of, I guess, spine surgery or spine graft, which failed, and they thought he was going to die. He didn't die. He was hospitalized multiple times, including with tuberculosis through his youth. One period when they said, yeah, you're going to die, he said he lay in bed and he willed, this is again in uh, The Martian, his biography in the book he published, The Secret World, that he willed the bone to grow around the problem or something. And while they all thought he was going to die, the doctors, he didn't. He survived. And so Palmer, at this stage, I'm assuming of his life, thought it must have been incredibly difficult. I can't even imagine. But he thought that he had special powers. He thought something had, you know, his imagination or his thinking, he was different and he was special. And despite his disfigurement and despite his problems, he went on to start writing science fiction. He founded at the day, I think, the most the, one of the earliest science fiction fanzines and certainly the most important, I think, was called The Comet, based, I think, believe, I believe on his Halley's Comet experience. I'm guessing is where the name was pulled from. And then when Ziff Davis acquired Amazing Stories, I think Palmer was like, I don't know, his 20s, 
and uh, it was failing. It was totally, it was falling apart, the magazine already. Gernsback had to, I think, get rid of it because it wasn't making him any money. And for some reason, I can't remember the writer, but somebody said, you should use, you know, Ray Palmer as your editor. This person who was already very involved in the sci-fi community. He'd already published a story, I think called, what was it called? The Ray of jandu or something i forget it's in a wonder stories i have the issue here anyway not an amazing stories a wonder stories so he'd already been published he was very well known very well respected in the fan community so much so that somebody suggested him to amazing and he was hired i think at the ripe old age of like 28 or something and he elevated that magazine again to the most popular science fiction magazine in the country and one of the most successful pulps period so Palmer's stories, again, it's just an amazing story. So it's interesting, though, that here you have, okay, they bring Palmer in to help save these failing publications, which he did. But then later there's animosity because he's publishing stories that they don't feel are appropriate for their caliber of magazines. Yeah, I think the science fiction community, meaning the science fiction fandom, which apparently, I mean, I, I wasn't there, but I've heard it was a relatively small but very noisy community, had a very inflated idea of what science fiction should be. It should be very cerebral, it should be very serious, and he started to annoy them that it wasn't serious. There was also apparently, I think it's in one of the Toronto books, suggests that there was some politics involved, like throughout the late 30s into the 40s, Ray Palm was a very much, you know, America and apple pie type publications, while some of the circle in New York had more liberal or more left-wing leaning ideas, and they didn't like that aspect of, you know, Palmer's publications as well, which was always very much rah, 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 America, and they didn't like that. They didn't like the tone of the stories, and they certainly didn't like the Shaver mystery. When all of a sudden this science fiction story is published, at first it's meant to be racial memory, then this next story is saying, no, this is real, and Richard Shaver is engaging with this strange, ancient, subterranean race with incredible technology below the surface, which is interfering with the human race. I mean, that was the final straw. But despite the fact that uh, here he's making money hand over fist for the parent company, they're just like, yeah, well, you know. Money isn't everything. <laughs> I think Mr. Ziff, I believe, I'm trying to remember now, I think he was the major shareholder owner of Ziff Davis, and I think Davis was the minority owner. And I think Davis was considered by the people in the in the editorial rooms, in the writing rooms of Amazing Stories as one of the boys. He'd come and hang out, and he'd be, you know, very accessible. Well, I believe Mr. Ziff was more removed and somebody who considered himself more of, I guess, you know, higher culture. And when he's, he, he felt the pressure that I don't want to be thought of as the guy who's running these crazy stories, which Life magazine are saying are, like, insane. And when I go to cocktail parties and the like, at least this is my impression. We've I got like lots it. more with Dean Bertram and Gene and Tim. You're in. The Pedicast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. 
Do you love reading about the mysteries of the universe? Do you wonder what secrets are hidden in the shadows of our own planet? If so, you won't want to miss these two amazing books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, The Others Among Us, you'll explore the world of the mimics of man, beings that can look like us but are not. They've been among us since the beginning of history, hiding in plain sight, influencing our culture in ways we can scarcely imagine. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll discover the so-called hard evidence of UFOs that's been available for study this entire time, but for the most part has been ignored. These two books will open your eyes to a hidden reality that has been right in front of our eyes all along. That's Mimics, The Others Among Us, and Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. Available now on Amazon.com. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So the highfalutin executive who publishes fiction magazines decides that Ray Palmer is going a little bit too far with the Shaver mystery? I think so. I think there was a Life article in the height of the Shaver days, which was very critical. I think people were saying that there was dangerous things happening within the pages of some of these. You have to remember, too, that Dianetics was run in Astounding, the original article by L. Ron Hubbard. And so there was there was this weird blend of strange things happening in science fiction magazines at the time where somehow what was originally just fictional was extending out into presenting a different version of reality. And I think for Mr. Ziff, I believe that, yes, I think the highfalutin exec, you're absolutely right. He didn't want to be going to cocktail parties with people who'd read Life magazine, and he was responsible for publishing something that people were saying was crazy and dangerous. So absolutely, Gene, that's pretty much what happened. As we say on the Paracast, I'm crazy, Tim's dangerous. (laughs) No, I'm crazy dangerous. Well, then I'm dangerous crazy. <laughs> or I, can... I am dangerously crazy. There you go. Well, I think Richard Shaver was considered both dangerous and crazy. I, if you wanted me to tell you some things I've, I've discovered about Shaver since I've been poking around Amherst, I'm happy to as well. Please. So... Again, there wasn't a whole lot, I don't think, of on-the-boots research about what was happening in Amherst 
and Lanark, it's essentially the same area from in that period from 1949 to 1963. We know there was a scandal that drove Richard Shaver out of town. We know that. We didn't really know what the people of Amherst and Lanark thought of, of Richard Shaver. Now, as I've said, what I can tell is Ray Palmer was thought very highly of in the community. He went to church. He was, I think, a member of local kind of, you know, Lions clubs and local councils and the school board and that kind of thing. He had a company which employed local housewives and other people who wanted, you know, an income to work, you know. When I say housewives, it's because people have actually used that term when I was talking to them during the day and they could go and pick up their kids and Ray was very understanding. And yet this is what I've heard anyway, yada, yada, yada. So he was well-liked. Well, what I noticed when I was talking to some people on the ground is very few people seem to remember Shaver initially. And I'm like, can you remember Ray Palmer being with him? Again, they moved there together. So, And presumably they're friends. Presumably they're, we know that they spent holidays together and we know that they regularly had dinners together. We know that, that Ray B. Palmer um, was going rock hunting along with one of Ray A. Palmer's daughters with with Richard Shaver. So they were clearly close, but people in town didn't have many, many recollections, at least that I've found so far. I'm still interviewing, so who knows, of Richard Shaver in town. A couple of the older guys who both left and I was fortunate enough to get their addresses, I think one's in California and one's in Arizona now. Anyway, both of them have told me very similar stories. And that is that while Ray Palmer became almost, you know, a part of the Amherst community, he was a part of the Amherst community, that Richard Shaver was always on the outer. One of these men told me Richard Shaver didn't, He said, it sounds horrible, he said he looked like a bum or he looked like he was a drunk. Presumably back in the 50s in Amherst, people still dressed well when they went to town. Both of these men said they couldn't remember seeing Palmer and Shaver together ever. They both remembered and can you imagine this? You've, for those of you who haven't seen Rock Art by Richard Shaver, an awful lot of it is gory, kind of gruesome scenes. A lot of it is nudity. A lot of it is things that mightn't be considered, you know, PG. It might be beyond PG, certainly at least PG. But he started to have, at the Portage County Fair, a stand where this is like a county fair in rural Wisconsin in the late 1950s and early 1960s, where he would display his rock books. Both of these men, independently from each other, told me that they remember being fascinated by it and their mothers, again, independent stories, dragging them away from the rock book stand. One of these men told me that behind, I suppose, Richard Shaver's back, which is a horrible story, people called Richard Shaver Rock Nutson in Lanark and in Amherst because they thought he was crazy. One of these men told me that his father, who was also probably, – he probably knew Ray Palmer and knew him well because both of them went to the same church apparently. But when he – Richard Shaver's house was supposedly not in great shape, which I've heard from a few people even when he bought it. Richard Shaver, who was quite handy, still wanted somebody to help him fix the foundations. And he wanted to hire this man's father – to go and fix his foundations. And the man said when he went there to Shaver's house, there was art on the wall of family inappropriate type art. I won't go into the details. And he never returned. And so as that man told me, Richard Shaver, which is a terribly sad story, was shunned. As the man also said, I think they were too bohemian for, he described Amherst and Lanark as being like a Mayberry back in the 1950s and early 60s. Wasn't there a time here, and this must have been around this time, 
Because Palmer knew very well the early editors of what became girly magazines, like Hugh Hefner and everything else back in Chicago. Wasn't there some involvement of that particular area that affected Shaver? It's the great tragedy, I think, of Shaver's later life, as well as perhaps the Shaver-Palmer relationship. William Hamling was an associate editor at Amazing Stories. He was arguably... Ray Palmer's best friend, maybe Shaver was, who knows? They were both, they were all very close anyway. William Hamlin used to visit Palmer in Amherst, I believe, from again the Richard Toronto books and try to talk Ray Palmer out of moving back to the cities. Like, this is no place for somebody as talented as you to have situated yourself. But Palmer was very happy there, so he didn't move. But William Hamlin was on the ground floor, apparently, of Playboy. And he didn't follow through with being a part of it. And when Hefner had the incredible success of playboy hamling launched his own magazine which i believe was called rogue at this same time pulp fiction is falling apart as you know now you go to the newsstands there might still be an analog i don't even know if there is anymore but pulp fiction's all but gone and so all of these writers needed somewhere to go and a lot of them went to adult fiction william hamling started a paperback publishing company which ran i suppose you know I don't know, luridish, soft corn, porn kind of stuff. And he ran it out of, he needed somewhere to run it out of. And he decided, you know, we'll run it out of Wisconsin. And he knew both Shaver and he knew Palmer. And there's different versions of what happened. But we know that Shaver signed on as the president of this publishing company. And Shaver had nothing to do with it other than he drew a $200 a month, I believe, check. I think his, his wife was another one of the, the executive officers, and I believe Ray Palmer was another one of the executive officers. But, but Richard Shaver was at the very top of that list. Now, a scandal broke when people discovered that this, in rural Wisconsin, again, in the, this is like Senator Joe McCarthy territory, right? This is like, this is like the, the, the early 60s super conservative area, that there was this adult publication company based in rural Wisconsin. Shaver, according to Toronto, drove very quickly to Madison and filed all of the paperwork to, you know, I guess collapse the company or to take his name off the company, but it was too late. Shaver was inundated with journalists who allegedly were literally camping outside of his property. It was such a scandal. And when they interviewed Shaver, and can you imagine how this went, to interview him about his involvement in an adult publishing enterprise, he said, well, I don't know anything about it. I just did it, you know, for the pay, and I just signed my name. But I'll tell you what, what you guys should really be looking into if you're all skillful investigators or reporters are the Darrow underneath the earth who were subverting the surface people, and he showed them their rock books. You can still find the newspaper articles on various sites like newspapers.com or whatever. So can you only imagine? And as a result, Shaver had to flee supposedly Amherst. Hey, we'll have more into the backgrounds of Ray Palmer, Richard Shaver, the invention of the flying saucers. Dean Bertram is with us. Also Tim Swartz. Also Gene Steinberg sometimes. I'm even here. Yes, I am. Although some people might have other ideas. You're in the podcast. (laughs) 
Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Radio? Why should I advertise on radio? There's nothing to look at, no pictures. Listen, you can do things on radio you couldn't possibly do on TV. That'll be the day. All right, watch this. Okay, people, and now when I give you the cue, I want the 700-foot mountain of whipped cream to roll into Lake Michigan, which has been drained and filled with hot chocolate. Then the Royal Canadian Air Force will fly overhead towing a 10-ton maraschino cherry, which will be dropped into the whipped cream to the cheering of 25,000 extras. All right, cue the mountain. Now, you want to try that on television? Well... You see, radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination. Advertising your business with GCN is simple, effective, and more affordable than you might think. Visit advertise.gcnlive.com for more info. Take your business to the next level. G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at teamg'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at teamg'day.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your longevity business. Teamg'day.com. Teamg'day.com. Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or you now need affordable health insurance, you need to make this free call right now and see how the health insurance helpline can help you get it. We specialize in helping the self-employed and people just like you that need affordable health insurance to get it. We have short and long-term health insurance plans and some even cover dental, vision, and prescription drugs. Don't take a risk with your family health insurance, it's not worth it. If you're self-employed or now need affordable health insurance, call right now and learn for free how to get it. Listen, affordable health insurance plans for everyone just like you are a free phone call away. So give us a shout right now. 800-670-0946. 800-670-0946. That's 800-670-0946. No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. So before you do this or this... 
make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Dean Bertram joins us. He's working on a documentary about the man who invented flying saucers, Raymond A. Palmer, talking about some of the sad things that happened to Richard Shaver. When you got his name on, I guess, what some thought of as the wrong kind of publication. By the way, analog science fiction and fact is still being published. Okay? It's out every other month, six issues a year. And ain't cheap, folks. It's forty-seven ninety-seven for a one-year subscription to the print version. But with this kind of magazine, let me tell you, print is what you want. Not digital print. Let's find out more about what happened to Shaver. I'm a sucker for print as well. I love print magazines. And I, I, I believe you've talked on previous episodes about how those old issues just disintegrate in your hand. Yeah, my amazing stories collection, whenever I lift it up, I'm like, oh, no, there goes another piece. They flake everywhere. <laughs> but as far as far as what happened with um, with Shaver, so we know he left. And I guess the, the popular history, or at least in Richard Toronto's, which is the best history, I think, suggests that I believe that Shaver was just because he'd been institutionalized before in various hospitals for the you know mentally unwell, as well as hospitals for the criminally insane, he was terrified about going back. So he fled to Summit, Arkansas, where he spent the rest of his life. Now, what I don't think anyone had ever heard, and I don't know if anyone else has even talked about it, but I was fortunate enough again to talk to somebody whose father had been at Shaver's, who knew Shaver, who'd seen Shaver's art at the county fair in portage wisconsin who said and he said this is speculative so i'll say this is speculative as well and i i think we'll talk about it in the documentary in the interview with this man but it will be hedged there as speculative as well what he said is he believes the sheriff at the time he knows a case where there was a very nasty i know this is a family show let's just say it was a very nasty case where the sheriff didn't want to have to deal with the crime in his county so he drove the person out he essentially gave him 24 hours to leave the town and my my source my interviewee knows that that's what happened and the person fled portage county to be prosecuted i assume elsewhere now the same source says what he suspects happened with richard shaver is that richard shaver was probably given a visit by the same sheriff who didn't want to deal with those dramas in Portage County, and that is why Richard Shaver fled the state. Incidentally, Richard Shaver later was called in that pornography case, and he did have to – I don't think he ever took the stand, and I believe the case was ultimately tried somewhere like Florida. Or I think William Hamling, who died a very rich man in California, but I think Hamling ended up doing – a year or two at a very relatively soft prison. But there were criminal ramifications for that um, for that publication company. Richard Shaver wasn't prosecuted. But my understanding, at least from talk, I, I know that he fled. I know he left in a hurry. But th- from talking to the recent local, who was then a local resident, my impression is that perhaps he was paid a visit by the same sheriff who 
terrified somebody else out of the county and that Shaver may have been driven out of of Amherst as well, which makes a lot of sense, or Amherst-Lanark area, which makes an awful lot of sense given that he seemed to be very committed to the space he he was living in. And when he left, he lamented, and I can tell you another story about this in a minute, but he lamented that he had left behind millions of dollars worth of rock books because he had to leave in such a hurry. How would he rate them as being millions and millions of dollars worth of books? That's a, that's a very good question. I'm sure they were only worth a few hundred bucks, if that. But apparently, I, I assume he had a collection of rock books. The reason I know that he did is I spoke earlier about visiting the property where Richard Shaver used to live and where I thought I was going to be able to film. And the owner was very nice and told me all kinds of stories. His family had owned the property for over 40 years. I assume his parents, because he's certainly not old enough to have owned a property for um, more than 40 years himself. He's probably only in his 50s or something. But he said there was one other owner between the Shavers and his family, and they were only held the land for, you know, a limited amount of time. He remembered the route, because his family were always in the area, that he remembered all the stories that Shavers were strange. And apparently, again, this is what I keep hearing from the people who remember, he kind of had this stigma attached to him. And when they tore down the house, which he showed me where it stood on the property, which now I, ironically has a Catholic shrine, literally, I'm not kidding you, which is quite common in the Midwest in this part of the world because there's, there's a lot of Catholic and Lutheran um, people here who are quite religious. There was a Catholic shrine on where, literally where the house had stood. I don't think they put it there because of, to, you know, <laughs> to exercise the land or something. I just think it was a prime spot of real estate. So they put a rather large Catholic shrine with some statues on there where Shaver's house used to stand. And he told me that when they demolished the house, yes, there were rock books in the house. And the reason I'm sure he was being sincere is, A, how would the devil, would he know what a rock book was? But the way he described them is what I've heard. He said that they were varnished, they were cut very thin, and they had all kinds of strange images painted on them. And he he actually was even as obviously somebody's a handyman himself like was querying it like i wonder what saw he used to cut the rock that fine and i was obviously excited i'm like what happened to those rock books i want to see these rock books and he was like well some other neighbors came who knew when we were pulling it down and they took some of the rock books and i don't know uh, well and i get the impression that the rest of the rock books were just discarded again i don't think they would have been worth millions of dollars certainly not then but there was probably a considerable collection of rock books in in shaver's house when he grabbed his materials and fled literally in the middle of the night. You know, it's very interesting here that at one time I had lots and lots of material from Shaver. And as I said, you know, I moved around the country and that's one reason. I stored everything in a file cabinet in a business I'd set up with a guy named Fred. And so the business didn't do so well, so I sold my interest And Fred finally folded. Fred folded. That's kind of goes together. And he threw out my file cabinet with hundreds of shaver letters, rock books, mementos from the UFO field, somewhere in a trash heap or something or a recycling plant. Oh, God. That's a story. (laughs) What a tragedy. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, the late uh, uh, Tim Beckley, he always used to tell me that uh, when he was a teenager and corresponded with Shaver, that Shaver was constantly sending him boxes of, as as Tim Beckley's mother would say, dirty rocks that his mom made him 
toss out into the backyard because she wouldn't have these dirty rocks in her house. So somewhere, maybe still in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, you know, buried in a garden somewhere, there's uh, Shaver's Rock Books. I need to get a shovel and go there and start digging. <laughs> so that just you know it just goes to show you though because I know that um, and it's been a few years ago there was actually um, like an uh, 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 an outsider artist show with uh, uh, Shaver's work uh, being featured that actually uh, went around to a number of different venues. Richard S. Shaver, Raymond A. Palmer. Dean Bertram, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz. What can I say? You're in. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. News update. Breaking this Sunday morning, a mass shooting in Maryland. At least two people killed, dozens injured in South Baltimore. Witnesses saying that hundreds of people were gathered for an event. Some say they heard 20 to 30 shots fired. In other news, a record number of Americans on the move this 4th of July weekend. And this Sunday still delays at the nation's airports and plenty of traffic to contend with on the highways. The silver lining in all this, your Barbecue Tuesday will be cheaper than last year. According to the American Farm Bureau families can expect to pay less than $68 for a party of 10. That's down 3% from last year's record high of $69.68. I'm Chris Caraggio. We turn now to politics in the 2024 campaign and former President Trump holding a rally Saturday in Pickens, South Carolina. Some supporters say they'd love to see him pick Florida Governor Republican Ron DeSantis as his running mate. And I'm Laura Winters, USA News. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. 
Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the mineral doctor. You've heard me talk about 90 for life for years. 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 2 fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed Arthur decks for animals. That's right. Your pets need 90 for life, too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877-279-9422. That's 877-279-9422. Again, 877-279-9422. Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the mineral doctor. You've heard me talk about 90 for life for years. 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 2 fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed Arthur decks for animals. That's right. Your pets need 90 for life, too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877-279-9422. That's 877-279-9422. Again, 877-279-9422. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast. By the way, Dean's going to be a part of our After the Paracast premium podcast. For subscribers to the Paracast Plus, go to theparacast.plus for more info. Speaking of availability of the show, we understand that one of the popular podcast apps, Stitcher, is going under. And so we've moved on to Pandora. So if you have Pandora access, and that's included also with a Sirius XM satellite radio subscription, You'll find the Paracast there. We're talking here about Richard Shaver, about his departure from Amherst, Wisconsin. And by the way, I did visit Shaver, as I explained earlier, in his home in Summit, Arkansas. And it was actually another small town, you know, like Amherst. And his little cottage was very neat. I got the impression of what you said that his home in Amherst was a mess. Well, I'm not sure if the internals were a mess, but I certainly know it wasn't in a great state of repair externally. Like, I think, I know when he bought it, it was already standing. Like, he didn't build the house. I've seen plat maps from a number of years before when his farmhouse was still standing. And I imagine that it had been built sometime before that. So, I've heard from a number of people now that the house itself, as far as the physicality of the house, structurally, it wasn't fantastic. At an internal level, all I know is that some of the imagery inside was not appropriate for conservative eyes in the 1950s. So what uh, what ended up happening to Ray Palmer? I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about his life, all of his great achievements. So what's the final story? I think this final story of Ray Palmer's life is a happy ending, to be honest. I think that Ray Palmer relocated to Amherst, Wisconsin, with a wife he loved, with three children that he adored, that he was part of the community, that he ran a publishing company that was able to keep his head above water, as well as allow him to still publish things like Flying Saucers from Other Worlds and Search Magazine and The Hidden World, that wonderful, I think, 16-issue series of the reboot of The Shaver Mystery in the 60s. And he was able to publish various books about Flying Saucers, as well as 
publish things for local people. A local paper is started, you know, to, to publish things that local businesses and local churches needed. And he lived out his life in a beautiful part of the world, raised a family, I think, which seemed to be very happy and very functional. And then, unfortunately, I think his physical ailments, which date back to the accident, caught up with him probably prematurely in 1977. I believe he and Marjorie were away visiting one of the daughters when he got um, just he started feeling weak and not feeling well and he was hospitalized and he didn't make it. But to, to minus that premature death, I think the 20 plus years, almost 28, 27 years that he spent in Amherst were, ha- were happy. And that makes me that makes me happy because often there's a, there's tragic endings to to stories of the weird and the unusual. But I think Palmer's ending is is a is a pretty nice ending. I think it's a nice I think he I think he ended his life in a nice way. Why do you think that considering the contribution the, the contributions that uh, Ray Palmer had for not only the field of science fiction but UFOs and the paranormal, I mean he he really was a mover and shaker that a lot of people don't remember who he was. That's one of the questions which has driven me making this documentary. And it's interesting. I, I run a film festival in Eau Claire, which is about an hour and a half from where I live, called Midwest Weird Fest. It's a fairly popular festival. It runs sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and paranormal documentaries. And when I was talking about Ray Palmer in an introduction to a screening this year, I asked the audience and they're all fairly canny, you know, like they're people who are, who are used to this kind of content. Who here knows who Ray Palmer is? Not a single hand went up. I asked for a show of hands. And these are people who live in Wisconsin. These are people who live an hour and a half away from where Ray Palmer spent over a quarter of a century of his life. So he has in many ways be forgotten. And I suspect that's because there's a there's a, a, a UFO belief, as Gene was suggesting, I think earlier, is somehow ahistorical. Like we keep making the same mistakes and the same decisions and expectations again and again. The way Kehoe was imagining disclosure was about to happen in the 50s, they're still talking about disclosure today. But I think with Palmer, similar to the way he's been mishandled or mistreated in the science fiction world, there's something about mainstream ufology that wants it all to be very cut and dried the government knows everything it's nuts and bolts sources from another from another world this we already know what it all is we just want the government to tell us what it is ray palmer never played that game now ray palmer wrote about the the stymie factor the idea and he spoke about it at one of his last speaking engagements about how ufos are kind of you know not respected and people are kind of humiliated and all of that's true but he was always happy to play with different ideas from the wapsy bible to shavers inner earth you know cavern people to just genuine i to ideas about the inner earth to he would bounce around all kind of ideas and i think there's this and I think it's incorrect. I think there's this idea that Ray Palmer was kind of Barnum-esque, and in a way he was. He knew how to sell a story. But I think there was a sincerity to Ray Palmer and an open-mindedness to Ray Palmer, and certainly that open-mindedness almost does not exist in mainstream ufology today or even back for a lot of the time Palmer was still writing. One thing Palmer said that I quote very, very often, flying saucers are here to make us think. You know, it's funny you say that, Gene, because Ray Raymond B. Palmer told me something very similar. It's a it's something that he still obviously subscribes to, and he said it was with his dad. 
thought. He said, this makes people want to, you know, look into the mystery more, as you said, want to think more. And I think that's the real value. I think it, I think flying saucers are ultimately have much to do with human psychology. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way that it's all in our minds or something, but I think that our approach to it is very indicative to us at a personal psychological level, as well as a cultural psychological level. Like if you trace the development of UFO belief, you can't help but escape the interconnectedness that it has with the culture of the day. It both affects the culture and the culture affects it. And I think if if there's somebody who is making suggestions that goes against the grain of what the culture is or what the whether that's the inner culture of ufology or the exterior culture of, oh, the government must know everything and it's some great big X-Files type of conspiracy, I don't think anybody wants to hear other explanations. Well, certainly right now, it seems like for a lot of researchers and and especially it seems like you know the people who are just coming on board um with the government and the military about UFOs seem to have like this collective uh, um uh, amnesia about the past or at least, or or possibly even unwillingness to look at it you know it it seems like that uh in their mindset, this all started in 2004, and anything that happened before that is negligible. That's absolutely true. I mean, look at the way that the UFO phenomenon has been handled since the New York Times story broke in 2017 on the front page. And all of a sudden, everybody from CNN to Tucker Carlson is treating this as a respectable story now because apparently the gatekeepers of respectability of the New York Times have said it's respectable. And then you get both congressional hearings, you get Department of Defense briefings. All of a sudden, it's like all of the history between the revelations now that it's respectable going back to 1969, the Condon Committee, everything that happened in between that where the Conan Committee said there's nothing for the U.S. government to look at to today. None of that ever happened. It's like they don't learn the lessons of history. They get rid of history. There is no history. (laughs) There is only what happens now. I want to ask you more about that, but first, let's look more at the forthcoming Ray Palmer biography about the man who invented flying saucers. With Gene and Dean and Tim, you're in. The Pericast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. 
dot plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Tehibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea helps build red corpuscles in the blood, which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop, and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. The first word is shop, spelled S-H-O-P, then the word super, and then the word tea. The complete website is shopsupertea.com or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100. Shopsupertea.com. My name is Don Wiskin, and at 42 years old, I suffered a massive heart attack, lost 35% of my heart to damaged tissue, and was supposed to spend the rest of my life on disability. What did I do? I took Extendivite, a garlic and cayenne mix of seven herbs which rebuilt my heart and gave me back my life. For over 17 years now, I have made this formula available to you so you don't have to suffer the same thing I did. Clean your blocked arteries and strengthen your heart and boost your natural immune system. I'm 60 years old now, and I still work every day. To get your Extendivite, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extendivite is only $69.95 for a two-month supply of either capsules or liquid. Extend your life with Extendivite. It's all too obvious. We're being distracted by meaningless news headlines. When you dig to find the truth, you discover that the American way of life is being threatened by the institutions we used to trust. It's easy to see the future holds more food shortages, systematic controls, and government overreach. But instead of throwing up their hands, folks are preparing. They're taking steps to be self-reliant and investing in emergency food storage. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, makes it easy to get started and join the ranks with this limited-time offer. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and get their top-selling four-week emergency food kit. Enjoy tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get new lower pricing this week on these four-week emergency food kits. Secure at least one food kit for each member of your family. They ship free, too. Those who know what's coming are preparing. Smart folks. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now. MyPatriotSupply.com Hi, this is James Fox, director of The Phenomenon and Moment of Contact. You're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. I think we get more into the current stuff also in the After the Powercast podcast with Dean Bertram right now. Let's go back to Palmer 
Where does your documentary stand? When can we see the finished version? Well, I'd like to finish principal photography, and the plan is to shoot it out by the fall or into the early fall. But then the reality is post-production on any serious, I suppose, feature presentation, whether it's a documentary or narrative fiction, takes a while. I mean, it takes a while to line it all up. And I don't want to be disingenuous and say this is going to be available in a couple of months. And then the reality might be, is there a festival lineup that I want to hold the premiere status for? But I'll certainly let you guys know as soon as it is available. So this will be late 2024 if we're still around. Conceivably. And let's hope we are still uh, still around. Yes, I, w- I would like to say 2024. Now, of course, we've seen a few minutes of footage, just works in progress, to get a sense of how it's going. What else do you expect to cover in this film? Because I've been involved in narrative filmmaking before, like feature fictional narrative you know, filmmaking. And when you do that kind of film, you go in with a very decided upon script and you know exactly you can have a shooting schedule and you know when you're going to at least wrap principal photography but a documentary is a little different it's not that you don't kind of already expect where it's going to start and when it where it's going to end but when you encounter people and parts of the story along the way it kind of shifts like for an example if raymond b palmer becomes a part of the documentary as i hope he will because he obviously has more insight into this than anybody else it will be a considerably different documentary to if he goes, you know what I mean, I'm just, I'm not interested in doing it. So in a documentary, you often get a change in focus or a change in the direction of the documentary. And it's wonderful because it's surprising. I didn't know many of the things I've discovered since I started poking around Amherst. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it goes to show how, yeah, documentary filmmaking is far more malleable than a standard narrative fiction film. Well, certainly events change as we go on. Like, for example, it would be interesting if any conclusions come from the Pentagon study to append that to the film, because you're talking about the guy who started it all, and now you're seeing where it ends up. You're very right. I'm very conscious of that. I'm conscious of that too many people view this ahistorically. So when they look at a Tic Tac video or when they listen to a Pentagon press release or when they read an article in the debrief or the New York Times, which is all focused upon the government seeming to know all of the answers already, and all we have to do is crack that open, and all of a sudden, ta-da, our beliefs in UFOs from other planets who have long been in cahoots with the US government, and there's underground bases and secret government briefing groups and everything else, will all of a sudden be justified. But again, like you said, this is an expectation which went back to Donald Kehoe's writing. So there's an ahistoricity, and I would like to bring that out. You're right in the documentary. I'd like to bring out the fact that there were people who influenced what we thought about UFOs that have forgotten. And perhaps the chief among those in the early days was Raymond A. Palmer. I think one of the things about Palmer that really people should take into consideration today is his suggestion that the UFO phenomena was probably not extraterrestrial as we're thinking of extraterrestrial. So he was way ahead of his time with that. Oh, absolutely. And again, as I mentioned before, this is something that doesn't really penetrate mainstream ufology or mainstream UFO belief. 
a, a more recognised level until the new ufology that John Keel wrote about in The Flying Saucer Subculture, which I think he originally wrote in 1973 and then appeared in the Journal of Popular Culture in 1975, where he was like, well, you know, myself and Jacques Vallée and Brad Steger and other people kind of realised that there was more to it than the nuts and bolts UFO stuff. But yeah, Palmer was saying this super early in the day. Well, one thing he talked about in the final years of his life is UFOs are from the astral, like another plane of existence. But that's very close to saying multidimensional multiverse, another dimension, which is very popular, at least in fiction these days. Yeah, I think it's just a semantic issue, really. I do think that there's commonalities between traditional mystic or occult or you know, theosophical, depending on what hat you're wearing, approaches to the paranormal, which coincides with what kind of uses a more modern quantum physics kind of way to explain that we're talking about something which is somehow apart from this reality, but somehow sometimes drifts into this reality or interacts with this reality. But yeah, I agree. It's the same thing. So what Palmer was saying there is that when Richard Shaver said he went to the caverns beneath the earth. He wasn't physically in caverns. He was in the astral plane or another dimension. Or maybe he got there mentally, kind of like John Carter did. If you remember, John Carter goes to sleep in this cave and he ends up on Mars. Well, that was the great point of disagreement between Raymond A. Palmer and Richard Sharp Shaver. The great point of disagreement was that Shaver thought this was all physical, materialistic, and it could all be if we could just put our heads under the earth and dig down there and pay real attention, there's physical proof for it. Well, Ray Palmer's position was much like the Uapsi Bible that he published and popularized again to some degree, was that there are these spiritual realms which interact with us. And when Richard Shaver was laying in a hospital bed in, you know, Ionia or Yaplitsi or the various places that he went to, he was having a genuine experience, but that experience was on a different plane and wasn't in a physical, literal cavern world. And of course, Shaver would really object to anything that wasn't completely physical. But yes, that's taking the mystical and changing it to sci-fi, which becomes another dimension. And it's just amazing how much that's covered now. Like, for example, the current TV show Superman and Lois has done some multidimensional things. The latest movie, The Flash, the film where he goes back in time to save his mother from being murdered and ends up with two Barry Allens and then two versions of Batman, including the guy who says, I'm Batman, Michael Keaton, the best Batman <laughs> of all. But all this is the multiverse. And it's just been very popular on TV. And there was a version of Flash Gordon on the Sci-Fi Network where when he went to Mongo, he didn't take a spaceship and go to Mongo. He went through a dimensional portal. Fascinating. Oh, wow. Yeah, and again, much of this you can see laid out in advance by Ray Palmer's musings on flying sources going back to even the Shaver Mystery days. So there's nothing new under the sun. And, of course, even before Palmer, a lot of this is evident in the type of thinkings of various religions and various theosophical and various occult thinkers and organizations and groups that somehow this reality that we live in isn't the only reality and we are interacting with things. Hey, 
We're just about out of time for our main show, but Dean will be back for after the Paracast with more discussions. But for those who want to know more about the things you're up to, Dean Bertram, where do they check you out? Well, at the moment, you can go to theshavermystery.com, which I'd love you to do. That just directs you to the Facebook page of the man who invented flying saucers because I update it fairly regularly with what I'm finding and what I'm discovering. And there will be an official man who invented flying saucer webpage close to the date. They can also check me out every week on both Saturday night at 10 p.m. Central and 9 p.m. on Tuesday night Central on Untold Radio Network for Talking Weird and Mysterious Library, which are my regular shows. And you're a big influence, by the way, Gene. I've been listening to your show for years, and you really are the gold standard, so thank you. You can find us on Twitter if you look for the Powercast. If we do anything to raise the ire of Elon Musk, of course, We may not last there very long. We're on Facebook with two areas, but we're shadow banned by Facebook, so the Paracast.com is not allowed. Boy, we're having a lot of fun with this. You can also check out the Paracast.shop and buy branded merchandise for the show. Get your best merch from the Paracast.shop. Also check out the Paracast Plus at the Paracast.plus. Simple sign-up instructions. It's a streaming service that we will give you this show without the network ads, higher quality audio, and the exclusive after the Paracast podcast. We never know what's going to happen next, and the FCC doesn't monitor that show. After the Paracast, we also offer a special deal. Use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20, you get 20% off for a five-year subscription and a lifetime subscription of the Paracast.plus. Dean Bertram, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you so much for having me, Gene and Tim. The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in... The Paracast.